Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Federal Society seat at the sitting. This is a monthly breakdown of the Supreme Court's docket. Uh, we are gathering today at one of those very rare moments where the entire nation's attention is focused on what's happening at the Supreme Court because next week uh, will really be a historic time. And that's, of course, when the court considers Morgan versus Sundance on Monday, uh, finally getting to the question of the degree of prejudice necessary to invoke mandatory arbitration in contested proceedings before a federal court. So I know that we'll all be glued uh, to C-SPAN to see what happens. Uh, and we are going to today take a look at that case, along with some of the other important cases uh, that uh, many lawyers spend their entire lives working uh, toward obtaining a seat on the Supreme Court for the chance to adjudicate. We have a tremendous panel today. Let me briefly introduce them. Uh, I introduce myself, Jess Raven, Supreme Court reporter, Wall Street Journal. That's me. Okay, forget about me. Let's hear from the great brains with us. Uh, Jonathan York, he's the Associate Chief Counsel at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Litigation Center, a very common customer at the Supreme Court. He handles a variety of litigation matters there. He clerked at all levels of the judiciary for Judge Thapar at the Eastern District of Kentucky, at the Sixth Circuit for Judge Jeff Sutton, uh, and at the Supreme Court for Justice Antonin Scalia, who turned out to be not that interesting, so we went on to clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas as well. Uh, we have uh, coming to us from uh, out on the coast, the, uh, we have uh, Thane Evangelist. She's a partner at Gibson Dunn. She's co-chair of the firm's global litigation practice. Uh, she previously headed the firm's class action practice, so she's head of the class in our view. Uh, she clerked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, and uh, at the, the Ninth Circuit, uh, which has such a wonderful home in San Francisco. Uh, next uh, up, we have, uh, I would say, uh, the best dressed man in Zoom. That's John Elwood of Arnold and Porter. He's the head of the firm's appellate uh, practice and Supreme Court practice. He's argued nine times before the Supreme Court uh, and in many of the federal appellate courts. He clerked for Justice Kennedy uh, and Judge Danny Mahoney on the Second Circuit, and he writes an invaluable column on SCOTUS blog uh, that is the tip sheet for all of us looking at the petitions that are pending at the Supreme Court. Uh, and Dean Evan Kamaker of uh, the University of Michigan Law School, uh, one of our great Gothic architecture institutions uh, in the United States. Uh, 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 Dean Kamaker, he writes, teaches, litigates about various issues of American constitutional law individual rights, governmental powers, judicial decision-making, uh, and he clerked for Justice Brennan uh, and uh, Judge William Norris on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, so these are, uh, it's a privilege to have them all here, and I hope that, that you'll have questions uh, for them as our discussion proceeds. Uh, housekeeping notes, all expressions of opinion are those of the speaker, except me, because I don't have any opinions. I am an impartial reporter. Uh, if you have questions for our experts, uh, you can put them in the Q&A tab and maybe we will get to them during the discussion. Otherwise, put your hands up uh, virtually and we will aim to get to them at the end of our discussion. 
So uh, we are going to get right into it. Uh, I'm just going to say a word uh, at the beginning. Many of the cases this upcoming session deal with arbitration, uh, and that has been one of the themes of Supreme Court's jurisprudence in recent years, the inviolability of arbitration uh, provisions in uh, many different kinds of contracts. Uh, the, the cases we have coming up uh, will be very important uh, for uh, the way that business and labor and consumers uh, operate in the United States, uh, or at least in some of the United States. Uh, so uh, it is a topic that may not be immediately as headlineable as some of the other cases at the Supreme Court, but these are decisions that really do affect a tremendous number of people and businesses uh, and our economy. So let us start uh, not with Morgan v. Sundance. We want to hold something exciting back in reserve. Instead, we're going to start with uh, Southwest Airlines versus Saxon. And uh, Fanny, can you kick us off? Oh, thank you, Jess. And I know we're all just waiting in suspense for Morgan, but I'm going to turn it over to John to kick us off with Southwest. Okay. Thank you, Jess and Thine. Um, As Jess hinted, there's been a bit of an arbitration explosion at the United States Supreme Court. The court granted four arbitration cases uh, that are all going to be argued at the upcoming sitting, and we're going to cover all four of them today. And as Jess said, the first is Southwest Airlines versus Saxon to be argued on March 28th. This case is about the scope of the Federal Arbitration Act's exemption for interstate transportation workers. And that exemption provides that the FAA does not apply to, quote, seamen, railroad employees, or any other class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. And the, the really important phrase is engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. In 2001, in a case called Circuit City Stores versus Adams, the Supreme Court held that only certain transportation workers fall within the exemptions catch-all language, the any other class of workers phrase, sometimes called the residual clause. And so this case, the Southwest case, is about precisely what kind of transportation workers qualify for this exemption. Um, the case is specifically about whether Southwest's airplane baggage handlers and their supervisors fall within the exemption. The baggage handlers load and unload luggage from planes, but they don't actually transport them um, across state lines or foreign borders. The respondent in this case, a woman named Latrice Saxon, actually worked for Southwest as a ramp agent supervisor at, exclusively at Chicago's Midway Airport. So she doesn't you know, travel across different airports in the country. At Midway, she supervised, trained, and assisted ramp agents loading and unloading passenger baggage onto and off of planes. And her employment contract with Southwest includes an agreement to arbitrate any wage disputes. But she sued Southwest in federal court under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, alleging that Southwest denied her overtime pay. And, but she argued that the, her arbitration clause was not covered by the FAA because she is a member of a, quote, class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce that are exempt under the transportation worker exemption. The district court granted Southwest's motion to compel arbitration, but the Seventh Circuit reversed, actually. The Seventh Circuit held that cargo loaders like Ms. Saxon are, quote, engaged in commerce for purposes of the FAA's exemption because they are so closely related to interstate transportation as to be practically a part of it. 
And although the Seventh Circuit acknowledged that loading cargo is not quite the same as transporting it across state lines in foreign or interstate commerce, the court nevertheless concluded that such closely related work is, for purposes of the, of the FAA's exemption, interstate transportation. So in the Seventh Circuit's view, workers that do not actually transport goods or people across state or national borders, like Ms. Saxon, can nevertheless still qualify as transportation workers that are exempt. Now, Southwest argues that the FAA's transportation worker exemption is a narrow one that only covers workers that participate directly in the cross-border transportation of goods or people. And by directly, Southwest means that they actually have to transport goods or people across state or national borders. Southwest argues that this is the, the core meaning of engaged in foreign or interstate commerce which it considers a legal term of art in 1925 when Congress enacted the FAA based on related cases at the time. What's so interesting about this case is that the party's briefs are actually fairly both originalists. They're both looking for, at least purportedly originalists, they're both looking for or arguing about the alleged original 1925 meaning of this phrase in the FAA. And so this is, the parties are primarily arguing about that historical meaning, and they're also arguing about a level of generality question, about how high a level of generality do we interpret the class of workers. So Southwest also argues that this narrow uh, definition is, is confirmed by the statute's neighboring references to seamen and railroad employees, which in, in Southwest view share the core common attribute of interstate transportation across state and national borders. And Southwest further emphasizes that the exemption should not be interpreted so broadly that it effectively swallows a large portion of the FAA's substantive provisions. And in response, Ms. Saxon argues that airplane luggage handlers fall within the transportation worker exemption because they play the same necessary role in the flow of commerce as seamen and railroad employees who are explicitly listed uh, in the statute. And furthermore, Saxon argues that the relevant level of generality for defining the quote class of workers is airline workers generally rather than baggage handlers specifically or ramp agent supervisors specifically. And like I said earlier, Saxon also has a contrary historical argument you know, insisting that those engaged in the loading or unloading of interstate shipment were in fact considered to be engaged in interstate commerce in the relevant sense in 1925. Uh, and so what, what's interesting, particularly about this case is it's obviously very important for Southwest and it's gonna have a lot of important implications, but what's so important is gonna be how broadly or narrowly the Supreme Court ultimately writes an opinion. It's theoretically possible that the court writes an opinion that says, well, baggage handlers are not even transporting, you know, uh, goods in interstate and people in interstate commerce in the relevant sense. So we don't really need to work out all the details about exactly what kind of transportation counts or whether what portion of the interstate uh, journey counts. For example, there's all, there's all kinds of potential fact patterns where this could arise. Amazon flex drivers that are completing you know, an intrastate leg, the last intrastate portion of an in interstate delivery of a package that where the item remains in its original packaging. What about them? You know, um, Uber and Lyft drivers, you know, that they may not be, we may not get a definitive answer about them uh, from this decision, you know, for, you know, it, for rideshare drivers that may occasionally go across state lines, but not primarily. 
But anyway, there, there is, it's very likely that uh, even a, a favorable opinion for Southwest in this case will not resolve all the potential issues about the scope of the transportation worker exception. But to address some of that and provide some additional commentary, I want to turn it over to Theonae. Thank you, John. Uh, this really is a fascinating case because it's a question that has been much debated. What is the relevant class of workers? And if you take Saxon's argument to its logical conclusion, then anyone who touches the airline industry or an airline would seem to fall within section one. But the question is really, does it matter what the worker does or what the employer does? And Saxon's argument is really focusing on what the employer does, but I don't think that's the right inquiry. And what I found fascinating too, is that the parties are debating uh, what it means to be a railroad worker or a seaman. And I thought Southwest Airlines were uh, argument on this was very persuasive. They said, has to be someone who was riding the rails or sailing the seas, or is it someone who was, you know, painting the ship? Um, it's really uh, an important exercise in line drawing. I think all of this counsels in favor of minimalism here and being careful of what consequences a broad ruling might have. But there are certain principles that just have to be the case. This is a narrow exception to the broad um, FAA. So we know that. We know that we're talking about movement of goods in interstate commerce, in the channels of commerce. So how far removed do you get before you're outside of that? I, I would argue that uh, Southwest uh, has the better argument there. And um, it, it really is going to be an interesting um, case to see which angle the court takes in deciding this. But I think there's a lot of focus, as you say, on what was intended in 1925, but we're now applying that framework to whole other classes of workers in different industries that of course were not uh, contemplated then. So I always find that fascinating. And, uh, and, and debating, uh, you know, what, how far we'll go here. But there are certain principles that I think would be helpful if the court were to weigh in and say, simply crossing state lines once, of course, is not enough. You have to be in the business of doing that, of moving things or people across state lines. And that's the central job description. I think that was, those were Justice Barrett's words in the Wallace versus Grubhub case, which I think are just spot on here. So um, very interesting to watch what the court will do, but uh, uh, for those of us who love arbitration issues. Um, you know, uh, just also just for context, as we, as we look at these cases, one, one point that occurs to me is that they're all arbitration cases. They also all are wage theft cases. In other words, the allegations in these cases are all that the, you know, the employer has underpaid or, or, or shorted the, the employees. And, uh, and, and there are class-wide issues because typically they don't just short, if they are, one baggage handler, it'd be all of them. I mean, they're on a shift or something like that. And so the question of class uh, arbitration and class rights uh, uh, is, is key to this. Uh, as we go on, I just wanted to note that um, uh, although the you know the Supreme Court has 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 treated um, the uh, the Arbitration Act really almost as sacrosanct, maybe the most uh, you know inviolable statute we have uh, compared to you know other statutes they've interpreted recently, um, the Congress has surprisingly perhaps pulled back a little bit this year. They passed an exception for cases uh, alleging 
uh, sexual harassment. And so I wonder, uh, as we discuss further, if we are seeing any kind of pullback uh, uh, from Congress for the kind of blanket endorsement of arbitration clauses in, uh, in, all, in all circumstances. Uh, and, uh, and finally, this is probably the only place when we talk about Southwest Airlines, when people say FAA, they're not thinking of the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, okay, so we have another transportation-related case involving arbitration, and that is the, the Viking River Cruises. Uh, shall we move on to that one? Yeah, thank you, Jess. And again, you're right, this case has underlying it a, a wage and hour claim. Um, this case was brought by uh, the plaintiff, Angie Moriana, who worked for Viking River Cruises as a sales representative in Los Angeles for just about a year. And before she uh, began her employment, she was presented with a bilateral arbitration agreement. She had a full opportunity to opt out. So this was not mandatory arbitration. This was uh, a voluntary decision by her to resolve all of her claims in bilateral arbitration. And the agreement very explicitly called out class collective representative or here it is, private attorney general action uh, uh, cases and claims. She waived her right to bring those. So she agreed to bring her claims in bilateral arbitration. But um, lo and behold, she filed her case in court under the California Private Attorney General Act. Um, so despite her arbitration agreement, she uh, filed her suit in court because California courts, the California Supreme Court and the Ascanian case uh, have held that those claims, PAGA claims cannot be waived, that those uh, are claims that an employee, an aggrieved employee is the language of the statute, has the right to bring in court and they cannot be waived in an arbitration agreement, that that would be against California's public policy. Um, so what is PAGA? Uh, PAGA is, uh, I think, as some of us call it, a Frankenstein statute where in, in California, it's really become the escape valve out of the rule against, uh, you know, it, it's the, the way to get around class action waivers. It's the way that uh, plaintiffs have begun bringing aggregate claims through a, a class-like procedure. The private attorney general action uh, permits an individual employee to seek penalties on behalf of themselves, but also all other purportedly aggrieved employees. So we're talking tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people collected together in aggregate litigation. It looks like a class action. It walks like a class action. It quacks like a class action, but California courts don't treat it like a class action. They have said that uh, the California Supreme Court has said that it's almost an inalienable right that an employee can bring a PAGA action in court and it can't be waived in an arbitration agreement. So what we have is a situation where the employee purports to bring the suit in the name of the um, of, of the state and it seeks penalties, 25% go to the employees, 75% go to the government, attorney's fees come off the top. They sometimes exceed, often exceed what the employees recover. And we're talking about penalties that stack up in a 
very significant way. These are hefty penalties, $100 per pay period, stacking of all these intricate arcane labor code violations. And by the way, if you're an employee, all you have to have suffered, according to the California courts, is one labor code violation in order to seek penalties on behalf of everyone who ever suffered any labor code violation. So just imagine the scope of this. So um, we know the Supreme Court said very clearly that class action waivers are enforceable. Class actions are inconsistent with bilateral arbitration, undermine all its benefits in the Concepcion case. They repeated that again in Epic Systems. Um, this is as clear and bedrock of a principle now as any. And uh, in response to that, we've seen this huge push for PAGA actions. And they've really taken the place of class actions and collective FLSA actions in California. And so um, each day there are 15 PAGA notices. An employee has to give notice to the, to the state before it, it pursues its litigation. So there are about 15 notices a day and over 5,000 each year in California. There are thousands of PAGA actions filed every year. So, and, and what I thought was uh, particularly interesting is Viking Rivers briefing called out some of the plaintiffs uh, uh, attempts to direct people to bring PAGA actions. You know, they're, they're just unabashedly calling for PAGA as the new class action. There, there was even one plaintiff's lawyer who famously had a Mr. Paga license plate, and I, I loved that footnote in Viking Rivers Brief. So um, this is really a huge problem. And so the court very recently has had just a, a very big flow of cert petitions asking the court to take this on. And I think uh, there was a, a period several years back when there were a few petitions filed, but then they all started with, with new urgency in the last couple of years. And so I think the, the Viking River grant is really um, perhaps reflective of the, the huge um, demand or, or ask by uh, employers in California to please correct this because it really is a, an end run around Concepcion and Epic Systems. So when Viking River moved to compel arbitration here, the California courts denied the motion, cited Iskanian, California Supreme Court as usual denied review. So the question is whether the FAA requires enforcement of a bilateral arbitration agreement providing that an employee cannot raise representative claims under PAGA. And uh, Viking River argues, and I, I think this is the key here, and they, this line is repeated throughout their briefing, and I think it really comes through and it's quite effective that there's quote, no meaningful difference between the class action at issue in Concepcion, the collective actions at issue in Epic and the representative PAGA action at issue here. And they go on to explain that PAGA actions are even less compatible than individual um, with, with individual arbitration than class actions. And I think that's true and Judge uh, Randy Smith's dissent in the Sakab case from the Ninth Circuit went through this in detail and was quite effective in explaining how PAGA actions are so dangerous and problematic. And, uh, and, and the Ninth Circuit, unfortunately, though, didn't agree with him. But since then, other judges have called out PAGA and the need for review here. So Moriana's arguments, really, I found them uh, interesting. What, what uh, Moriana is arguing is that Viking is actually not just seeking to compel arbitration of a PAGA claim, but 
to preclude her from bringing a PAGA claim in any form. So really trying to turn this into a waiver situation, not an arbitration agreement. It uh, seems rather defensive. Uh, and I, I don't think it's persuasive because again, if it walks like a duck and looks like a duck, <laughs> I'd say um, it, it really is uh, quite like exactly what the Supreme Court said was not permissible in Epic and in Concepcion. So mm -hmm. um, thanks. Do we have, like, uh, do we have a, uh, any other, uh, uh, anything else on, on this case? Um, anyone yes, want to jump in uh, quickly? Sure. Yes. There's some really interesting aspects of, of this case and potential implications for other related rules. So, so first, I, I want to definitely echo Thine's comments that Iskanian in California fundamentally changed how significant PAGA was. PAGA claims went from sort of a tag-along claim in, in a lot of lawsuits to really the main event because of the Iskanian rule and how they allow uh, plaintiffs to avoid uh, their clients' arbitration clauses, and importantly, the, the class action waivers that are part of those arbitration agreements. Um, what's also interesting <clears throat> about this grant is the timing of it after so many petitions had been denied for so long on this issue. Justice Barrett joins the court, and then all of a sudden the court grants the cert petition. Now, we certainly don't know for sure. I'm speculating that her presence on the court made a difference. It could just be, as DNA suggested, that the court, <clears throat> excuse me, was getting so many of these petitions from employers that the, the, the need to resolve this, this question was just imperative. But it could also be that Justice Barrett joining the court made a difference. Um, so those are some interesting facts. Another one is that this uh, case comes out of a state court, which the Supreme Court for a while had avoided taking arbitration cases from state Supreme Courts because Justice Thomas notably doesn't believe that the Federal Arbitration Act applies in state court. And so it was kind of a vehicle problem for the court to take a case, an arbitration case from a state court, because there was always the risk that the court would not be able to, to form a five justice judgment. Now, so we're testing that now, whether, you know, I my suspicion is that the majority, the conservative majority believes that they have five solid votes, that the FAA, at least five solid votes, that the FAA applies in state court, so this, so Justice Thomas's unique view may not become an issue anymore. But we also don't know whether Justice Gorsuch or Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh shares Justice Thomas's view on that. We haven't, they haven't indicated one way or another. So that'll be interesting. Uh, and then finally, I just want to note that California has a very similar rule called the McGill Rule um, about what are known as public injunctions, which are very similar to these PAGA claims where. Uh, a plaintiff is seeking an injunction, not just on their own behalf, but on behalf of the public and other plaintiffs. And generally, they're very similar to class actions. And California has a similar rule from the McGill case that holds that arbitration agreements that do not allow plaintiffs to bring public injunction claims before the arbitrator are void and unenforceable. And, uh, you know, I think a favorable decision for Viking River that holds uh, this Iskanian rule about PAGA preempted, the reasoning of such a decision would very likely also doom the McGill rule as also preempted. But that's another thing to watch that after um, a decision in this case, what will be the effect of the decision on this related rule in California? Yeah, and I, I just want to say you're, you're both very, very, uh, very persuasive. Uh, and, and listening to you, you would have to think 
California and, and the other party were out of their minds to even uh, go, take this, you know, make these this case. I think we should just say that um, as I as I you know read the papers, I believe that the the plaintiff uh, you know was you know when she agreed to a, an arbitration clause, it wasn't that she went and had wonderful counsel like people on this panel. She had a bunch of forms that she got when she got a job, and there was an opt out box uh, on one form that she didn't check. So uh, it's it's not uh, it's not the kind of thing where she and and her team of of lawyers met with Viking River Cruises team of lawyers and they spent you know three weeks uh, at a ski chalet working out these details. This was a much more of a very quick employment agreement that that many people in in wage jobs uh, get and and sign without. Uh, a great deal of informed uh, legal advice. Uh, California's position uh, is that it can't, uh, it's not economical for it to police every single uh, wage uh, uh, violation in the state. And so they have decided uh, that to, uh, as a matter of efficiency, to, to sort of to outsource enforcement of state law. And, uh, uh, you know, the Supreme Court in other circumstances, one might mention, uh, has thought it seems okay uh, for a state to outsource uh, enforcement of its uh, legal policies or prohibitions to, to private parties. So that is that is one thing California says it is doing through this, whether in, in reality it, it works that way or not, obviously, is, is, is a matter of, of debate. Uh, there, you know, people are trying to get an advantage from whatever legal devices are, are at their disposal, no, no doubt. But uh, but we have seen in this case and in other cases, California very much disliking the uh, Supreme Court's uh, understanding of the, the Federal Arbitration Act. And, and certainly this is a way they want to get around that. Uh, but they also say that they have public policy objectives that uh, that this uh, legislation fulfills. And uh, I think that we have seen some uh, uh, amicus briefs or some people say there might be implications for other types of actions where a private party uh, takes on the representation of a government interests like uh, you know federal false claim act cases or or other key TAM uh, actions. Is there are there any implications for this case and other uh, elements, other types of, of of situations where you have a private party asserting uh, a government interest? Well, just this really isn't a key TAM statute. Let's just take. I'd like to take that premise on because uh, the plaintiffs are trying to argue that it is, but that's really a key point here. And actually, uh, there's a very interesting opinion from the Ninth Circuit in Magadia versus Walmart, which explains why PAGA is not a traditional key TAM statute. A plaintiff in a PAGA case brings the case on behalf of herself, as uh, Ms. Moriana did here. So it is the individual's claim and uh, the individual controls the suit. It's not the same as the uh, as the False Claims Act situation at all. And uh, and and so we're really dealing with something that is um, a, a an end run around Rule 23 class action procedures and safeguards, and in this case, arbitration agreements. And if it's so important to the state. The state has now built up a war chest through its 75% of penalties through settlement after settlement since PAGA was enacted. So maybe it could use that for the cases that really merit um, taking them on or an individual can bring a claim on, on uh, their own behalf and uh, pursue it in arbitration. So I do disagree with the premise that this is going to affect enforcement. I think that what hopefully it will do is weed out the you know cut and paste jobs that we're seeing where uh, the word class action and the plaintiff's name are, are you know 
cut and pasted over to a different name with a with PAGA to replace the class action. So um, we'll see what happens. Now I I know we've been we, you know they are they are beating down the doors to hear about Morgan versus Sundance and uh, I think that uh, we we don't want we don't want any stampedes so uh, can we can we turn to that case now? Sure, Jess, and 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 notwithstanding Jess's uh, you know hype about Morgan versus Sundance, it is a bit technical, and uh, so we'll try to keep our discussion of that a little bit brief. And if you really have burning questions about Morgan, we can certainly explore them after, after the, the full discussion. But Morgan versus Sundance is about whether waiver of the right to invoke an arbitration agreement requires the party resisting arbitration to demonstrate prejudice from any delay in, in invoking the right to arbitrate. And so Respondent Sundance owns a bunch of Taco Bell franchises across the United States. And petitioner Robin Morgan worked at, at one of these Taco Bells in Iowa as an hourly employee. And as, as Jess explained earlier, this is one of those Fair Labor Standard Act cases where Ms. Morgan alleges that Sundance violated her rights under the statute by not paying her and other Taco Bell employees for all of her hours that she worked and also by not paying her legally required overtime. And for these alleged FLSA violations, uh, Morgan brought a nationwide collective action against Sundance in, in federal court under the FLSA. And just as a note for those who may not be familiar, the FLSA has a statutory collective action procedure that's not exactly a Rule 23 class action, but it's very similar to a Rule 23 class action. But the differences don't matter for purposes of this case and the arbitration issue. Um, so and it can be waived. Is that right? Yes, it can be subject to arbitration, just like just like any other any other claim. Um, so Sundance uh, uh, immediately upon Miss Morgan's suit, Sundance didn't immediately move to compel arbitration. It first filed an unsuccessful motion to dismiss without mentioning arbitration in that motion. After the district court denied that motion to dismiss, Sundance then filed an answer raising various affirmative defenses. Also, none of those affirmative defenses included. At the arbitration agreement. Sorry, I should have mentioned that Miss Miss uh, Morgan's uh, employment contract with Sundance includes an arbitration clause. That's a premise of this case. Sorry. Um, after answering the Miss Morgan's complaint, there was also a brief attempt by Sundance to settle the the claims through mediation, but they were unsuccessful and weren't able to resolve Miss Morgan's claims. And then three weeks after the mediation concluded, unsuccessfully. Sundance then, for the first time, moved to compel arbitration. And at that point, the district court denied this motion to compel arbitration, agreeing with Morgan that Sundance had demonstrated an affirmative intent to waive its right to invoke the arbitration clause by engaging in courtroom litigation and seeking to settle her claims. But the Eighth Circuit reversed, holding that Sundance had not, in fact, waived its right to enforce the arbitration agreement because Morgan had not been prejudiced by the delay, by Sundance's delay in invoking the agreement. So Ms. Morgan argues that a unique, a prejudice requirement for waiver of arbitration rights essentially violates the Federal Arbitration Act because such a requirement is not a general requirement for the waiver of other contract rights besides the right to arbitrate. And so it's really taking trying to take that uh, equal treatment principle that the Supreme Court has reiterated so frequently um, in recent cases 
trying to use that against Sundance, who's trying to invoke arbitration. Uh, in response, right, that's, that's kind of the funny thing about this case, right? Like they're trying to say it's our incredible respect for arbitration that makes us want to void your arbitration clause. Yes, exactly, exactly right. That's what makes this case a bit unique and unusual. Um, so Sundance, in response, are, raises a, a various arguments. One of which is that um, the FAA itself says that a court must shall, sorry, the word is shall, and shall means must, Sundance says, and the, the court thus must issue a stay um, when there's a valid arbitration agreement, unless a party is in default uh, of, of their agreement. It, that's the relevant language from the statute. And, and Sundance says default for various reasons, you know, naturally includes a prejudice requirement that there's no default of our of our contractual obligations unless someone has been prejudiced. And Sundance also argues that this sort of situation should be handled by general background procedural rules rather than state by state, um, you know, contract waiver doctrines, which may be vague and differ across states. At least in federal court, table the state court issue, which is a little tricky, but at least in federal court. Uh, this waiver forfeiture question, there's also a dispute about exactly the terminology and how to characterize it. Is it waiver? Is it forfeiture? Is it latches? Is it estoppel? I'm not going to get into all those technical distinctions, but the gist is of Sundance's argument is the general rules of federal civil procedure, which govern when parties can raise defenses, should, should govern this issue, and those generally applicable rules require prejudice. And so therefore, you know, Sundance shouldn't be held to have waived its right to invoke the arbitration agreement because its delay uh, did not cause Ms. Morgan any prejudice. You know, yes, you know, Sundance engaged in some litigation already, but discovery, for example, had not even started. And discovery is sort of like a major moment in the litigation where the costs increase. And so, you know, before discovery, at least um, there, you know, there, there's no prejudice to Ms. Morgan. And then Sundance also does make some policy arguments um, that I suggested earlier about how you know, doing the state-by-state -state approach would be very um, unpredictable, would not give defendants very much comfort in their in, in being able to rely on their arbitration clauses and know exactly by when they have to raise these arguments. And that the rule, you know, the no prejudice rule is just harsh. It's unfair and harsh that why should a, a party lose its right to arbitrate if if uh, the the delay has not prejudiced anyone. So those are at least at a high level. But that's a general summary of the party's arguments in this case. And I want to turn it over to Theane to to discuss um, any commentary that she wanted to offer on Morgan. Sure, and and I really go back to Jess's point at the outset. What's what's really fascinating here is that the plaintiff Morgan is is arguing, no, 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 we just love arbitration so much. That's why we're going to apply waiver rules that apply generally to contracts uh, here as well. And, uh, and the FAA requires a general application of rules, not special rules for arbitration agreements. Uh, whereas Sundance is arguing, no, the FAA is decidedly pro-arbitration and it requires the application of rules that favor arbitration. And here, this is exactly the sort of 
made up gotcha rule that would um, actually defeat arbitration agreements. And, you know, at what point would a party waive arbitration? I, I'd be afraid to pick up the phone and try to uh, resolve a case informally. We, we know that's good for everybody, but, you know, you didn't, you didn't immediately seek arbitration. So now you waived it. I'm not sure at what point you can draw the line there. So this would just be open to all sorts of hyper-technical gotcha manipulations by anyone trying to avoid an arbitration agreement. And also um, it would allow states, Morgan's position would allow states to create their own special waiver rules to try to defeat arbitration. We just saw in Viking River, the extents to which California and California courts have gone to um, really go against the Supreme Court's teachings on the FAA. Um, so this would just open the door to mischief. I think that the um, much better view, not surprisingly from my perspective, is the that which is um, advocated by Sundance. And, you know, the Eighth Circuit's decision just seems right here. So at first I thought this is an interesting grant because the decision below is right. And But, you know, since not, I think since 2007, the court has uh, reversed in 70% of the cases. So in 30% of the cases they've affirmed. So I think that the respondent actually has the better of this argument. Um, but uh, lastly, I will just say, you know, what will be the reach of this decision potentially? Hard to know, depends on which way the court goes. But we have seen, at least in my home state of California, that the legislature and the courts have been very hostile to arbitration and they've enacted laws recently that are aimed at finding waiver of the right to arbitrate. So SB 707 is one such law. It relates to mass arbitration and uh, the filing fees that are due when uh, arbitration demands are filed. And it has a very punitive system of waiving your right to arbitrate if you don't immediately pay, even if the demands are invalid, even if they didn't follow the arbitration agreement, even if, even if you have all of these arguments, but you still waived your right to arbitrate according to the state of California. So that is really problematic. Um, I think waiver rules are an area where the um, for those who are against arbitration are really seeking to push the envelope. So it will be interesting to see what the court does here. Yes, well, uh, thank you, uh, uh, Fanny and, uh, and, and Jonathan, our, our, own, our own Sundance kids uh, for, uh, for today's session. Uh, any other thoughts on, on this particular trio of domestic arbitration cases? Um, I mean, certainly, certainly it's, it's, it's not the first time we've seen uh, a state uh, 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 perhaps uh, bristle at Supreme Court precedents in a certain area and enact uh, laws that, that try to push the envelope. Uh, maybe someone, maybe some other sessions will also involve uh, cases that involve that phenomenon. Uh, or maybe some have already been argued. The, um, you know, I, when I think of uh, the Federal Arbitration Act, I think, of course, of President Coolidge. And I was reading the papers of President Coolidge uh, and looking up what he had to say about arbitration, because, of course, he, he signed that act in 1926. And most of his remarks on arbitration actually do not involve domestic commercial arbitration. He talks a lot about arbitration as a way to resolve international disputes. And, uh, of course, uh, earlier this week, all eyes were on the Peace Palace at The Hague, 
uh, the seat of international justice, where we were all very eager to see what that tribunal, the permanent court of arbitration based in the Peace Palace, uh, might be up to. Instead, it was preempted uh, by the ICJ, which had some other dispute that it was uh, uh, opining on. Uh, but it turns out that our next case uh, involving international law also involves arbitration. Uh, and uh, for that, uh, Mr. Elwood, are you uh, able to uh, take us on a ride? Certainly. Um, so enough about arbitration. Let's talk about arbitration. Um, but at least this is a slightly different flavor, international or has an international flavor. Now, Section 1782 of Title, 8, uh, Title 28 of the U.S. Code provides that federal district courts have discretion to order someone who resides or is found in that court's district to give testimony or produce documents, quote, for use in a foreign or international tribunal, unquote. Now, the case that was supposed to begin this term back on the first Monday of October, Servotronics versus Rolls-Royce, addressed whether that discretion extends not just to foreign court proceedings, but also extends to discovery for use in a private arbitration that occurs overseas. But that case settled on the eve of argument. More speculation later on why it may have settled. But once that case settled, other parties and cases that presented the same issue practically tripped over each other trying to be the replacement vehicle for the court to resolve a recognized split. And it's a measure of how often this issue comes up that there were a number of cases in the pipeline behind Servitronics uh, for the court to take. There were two winners in the race to the courthouse and the court granted cert to have the cases argued together. So there's been, uh, um, I think it's about an hour of argument, although I suspect it will run long. The first of the two cases is ZF Automotive US versus Luxshare Limited. Now, Luxshare is a Hong Kong company which sued the U.S. subsidiary of a German auto parts maker for fraudulent concealment in connection with the sale of a business unit. So the sale went sour and they went into arbitration to sue for it. The cases involved, or rather the case involves private arbitration by contract in Germany. Luxshare, the Hong Kong corporation, successfully got a district court in Michigan to order discovery. Now, because Sixth Circuit precedent already supported that ruling, already said you have to, or that they have discretion to uh, order discovery for a foreign private uh, arbitration proceeding, the Supreme Court granted a cert before judgment. That is, they took a case that had only been decided by the district court and hadn't yet been reviewed by the uh, Court of Appeals which is the normal way things are done. That's still a fairly rare procedure. I've been watching the court pretty closely for a couple of decades, and I can only think of a few examples of that. The second case is Alex Partners versus, this is a very catchy name, Fund for Protection of Investor Rights in Foreign States. It just rolls off the tongue. The facts of that case are slightly different. The fund is a Russian corporation, which may be why the name is so clunky, that owns an interest in a private bank that Lithuania nationalized when Lithuania said that the bank had become bankrupt. The fund commenced arbitration against Lithuania, not under a contract, but under a bilateral investment treaty between Lithuania and the Russian Federation. That treaty provided uh, either proceedings in a court of either one of the states or in an ad hoc arbitral body, and the fund chose arbitration. 
The fund successfully sought an order requiring discovery of Alex partners because one of their employees is a fact witness. And I just have to note because I have a very juvenile sense of humor that the man's name is Freakly, uh, like the adverb form of freak. Um, but although the, the petitioners in both cases argued that their case was clearly the better vehicle, I think both cases, I think both petitioners and the court appreciated that it might be better to have both of the cases granted so that the court had different types of arbitration before it, which might allow the court to give a more complete answer. And that is what the court wound up doing. They both have kind of the more common instance of contractual arbitration and also um, arbitration under a uh, investor state treaty. Now the petitioners uh, in both cases are the parties resisting discovery. And both petitioners obviously, but also joined by the United States or the Solicitor General as amicus curiae or friend of the court, argue that the ordinary contemporary meaning of tribunal when Congress enacted the provision back in 1964 was limited to governmental forums, not just sort of private groups that have convened to give arbitration by contract or under a treaty, but only governmental forums. They note that the surrounding provisions uh, to section 1782 uh, uh, reference the same phrase, foreign or international tribunals, and that those other provisions around it only make sense if they involve governmental entities. For example, there's one provision that authorizes the State Department, the Federal State Department, to receive a letter rogatory from a foreign or international tribunal. And I don't know how many of you know what a letter rogatory is, um, but it's a way that states generally ask other states to give information and that they're really only, uh, really only governments can issue those. Um, although uh, as soon as this, this is over, I think I'm going to print up a document that says letter rogatory on my printer just because it sounds kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, they argued that the theory is most consistent with the predecessor statutes that pre-existed 1964 that only involved judicial assistance, that is only assistance to real live governmental courts and things like that. <clears throat> and it was meant to be expanded only slightly to encompass things like administrative or investigatory bodies like magistrates and things like that. And there's no dispute that before 1964, the statute really only applied to foreign courts. And they argue that there's nothing about the text that, that suggests that they should expand it so broadly. They also note that domestic arbitral bodies can't ask courts for discovery. You know, uh, arbitration in the, in the United States is really kind of a very streamlined procedure. And obviously you can't ask for, you know, courts to assist you in discovery here. And uh, the petitioners in the United States argue it would be weird to treat foreign arbitral bodies better than uh, they treat domestic arbitral bodies. And they also say that it's inconsistent with the idea of arbitration being faster and more streamlined. Um, the government and Alex partners in the second case, um, uh, that is the, the case involving uh, investor state uh, arbitration or investor state treaties, argue that the same is basically true of arbitration in those kinds of cases as well. And that the panel there functions independently of any governmental body and it's convened on an ad hoc basis, just like contractual arbitration. Um, they argue that having discovery uh, would upset the settled expectations of the people who enter into those sorts of, uh, uh, you know, in, into those sorts of treaties. My, now, by contrast, 
The parties seeking discovery in both of these cases argue that there are some broad definitions of tribunal that literally would encompass arbitral panels. They basically just say that, uh, you know, a tribunal is a body that adjudicates disputes. And they argue that the presence of the word foreign and international don't obviously add a governmental aspect. They say that foreign films and international music aren't governmental either. And so basically that, you know, you add those words and it doesn't add this whole new gloss. They argue that it was obviously meant, uh, section 1782 was obviously meant to expand the scope of what was available. Um, for whatever it's worth, the Supreme Court previously this held in a, a case called audio Intel versus Advanced Micro Devices that Section 1782 permitted dis district courts to provide discovery to a European antitrust commission, although that doesn't really add that much because uh, that was uh, doubtlessly a governmental body. But, you know, for people who are really reading the cases closely, if you look at the opinion in Intel, the Supreme Court repeatedly quoted with approval, a law review article written by a guy named Hans Smith, who was a professor who served as the reporter on the commission that drafted, uh, you know, drafted the recommendations that gave rise to 1782. And uh, uh, the Supreme Court, in a, an example of why you shouldn't uh, include language in an opinion that isn't really necessary, they quoted in a parenthetical a footnote in the Smith article stating the following. The term tribunal includes investigating magistrates, administrative and arbitral tribunals. So uh, it looks like if you're reading the case very closely, the Supreme Court already kind of decided that. So in any event, uh, this kind of brings us to the end of me just reciting the facts. And now I will uh, give you guys a little bit of insider information so you know why you tune into these things. I participated in a uh, essentially a school for new appellate judges over the summer. And because so few cases had been briefed by that point, they used the Servitronics case as an exercise for the new judges. And so we had a whole room full of new appellate judges, as well as a panel of actual appellate judges or, you know, long time experienced appellate judges. And at the end of that proceeding, they used uh, my associates to argue the case back and forth. And at the end of that, uh, they all voted to see who won. And this is the Servitronics case. And the judges, new and experienced voted overwhelmingly that section 1782 does not cover private arbitral proceedings. So for whatever that's worth, they didn't have um, the second case involving the uh, investor state arbitration. So maybe the facts were slightly different, um, but at least if you go by, uh, you know, a fairly well ventilated issue with a lot of experienced judges, uh, they seem to think overwhelmingly that 1782 doesn't cover arbitral proceedings. So for whatever that's worth, I pass that along. Uh, uh, obviously, we welcome uh, discussion, but I wanted to say, firstly, uh, uh, John, you, you, you've, uh, you've uh, demonstrated why we call this Freakily Friday. Uh, the, uh, there are a lot of always, you can look at cases uh, through many different lenses. Another way to look at these, these cases uh, has to do with uh, supplying discovery to a foreign legal proceeding of some kind. And we did have, just for context, we had another interesting case involving that, this term that was decided recently, and that was where uh, Guantanamo detainee Abu Zubaydah, uh, working with Polish prosecutors, wanted to get evidence from the CIA's uh, torture contractors who uh, 
who worked with him, you could say, uh, in Poland uh, uh, years ago. Uh, and uh, even though everything they had, or much of what they've done is, is well known publicly and has been reported and they've written books about it and been on TV and so on, uh, the question was whether that was a state secret because the United States intervened uh, in that effort and, and did not want those contractors to provide that evidence. And uh, even though there was a treaty with Poland that that uh, envisioned uh, cooperation with their legal proceedings. And the court did hold that um, state secrets privilege uh, would uh, require that uh, request to be uh, denied. So that was, uh, you know, these, these issues of providing evidence to foreign proceedings uh, or international proceedings, you know, come up uh, repeatedly and perhaps we'll even see them related to the Ukraine war as we, as the United States has taken a, a great interest in, in the international law consequences of that, of that uh, conflict. Uh, we we uh, have another international case. Uh, can you walk us uh, through it, John? Sure. So uh, in Golan versus Sada, the Supreme Court will once again weigh in on the interpretation of the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of International Child Abduction, which is an international agreement adopted in 1980 to deal with international child abductions during domestic disputes. Now, this may sound like kind of an obscure treaty, uh, but it is rem remarkable how many times the Supreme Court has addressed this. It's not quite as common as cases on the Armed Career Criminal Act, which seem to come up. My standard joke is there are more Armed Career Criminal Act cases than there are Armed Career Criminals. Uh, but uh, it, this isn't quite as common as that, but they're still quite common. This will be the fifth time that the court has construed that treaty just since 2010. Uh, which is uh, really very frequent uh, to be coming back to a treaty. It's probably the most commonly litigated treaty. Now, under the convention, children who are wrongfully taken from the country where they live, which under the terms of the treaty is a country where they are habitually resident, they must be returned to that country so that the custody dispute can be resolved in the country where they ordinarily live. The rationale behind this mandate is that a parent should not be able to gain an advantage in a custody dispute by abducting the child and taking them to a different country. The convention carves out an exemption to the general return requirement for cases in which there is a quote unquote grave risk that returning the child would expose the child to physical or psychological harm. Now in Golan, the justices agreed to decide whether courts are required to consider all measures that might reduce the grave risk of harm if the child were to return home, that is ameliorative measures. That is, once the court finds that there is a grave risk in returning the child, whether they can just stop there and allow the child to remain in the country where they are now here, or whether they are obligated to consider whether they should be permitted, uh, or whether are they're obligated to consider whether there are steps they could take to make it safe to return home. The question comes to the court as Hague Convention cases generally do, in a case involving parents from two different countries. Narcis Golan, a US citizen, married Iziko Sada, an Italian citizen, I apologize for butchering the pronunciations, in 2015. The couple's child, known as BAS in the court proceedings, was born in Milan in 2016. Sada was abusive towards Golan throughout their, measure, their, throughout their marriage, often in front of BAS, uh, but there's no indication that he mistreated the child directly. In 2018, Golan took BAS to the United States and did not return, remaining in a domestic violence shelter in New York City. 
Sada went to federal court there trying to compel BAS's return to Italy under the convention. The district court concluded there was a grave risk of harm to BAS if, was if uh, he was returned, but then came up with some relatively mild ameliorative measures to reduce the risk of harm. Now the case went up to the second circuit on appeal and it concluded that when a district court concludes that a child's return would pose a grave risk of harm, the district court is obliged to consider measures that would re reduce the risk. The court also concluded that the measures there weren't sufficient to ensure BAS's safety. So the case was sent back to the district court, which spent another nine months considering uh, ameliorative measures. And after all that ordered BAS's return to Italy with a wide variety of measures in place to protect him. For example, uh, Sada was required to pay Golan's expenses for an entire year so she could live there to protect him. Uh, he entered sort of a protective order against Sada and ordered therapy and parenting classes for Sada. So Golan, the mother, went to the Supreme Court asking for the justices to take up her case. She argued that the Second Circuit's rule requiring courts to consider measures to reduce the risk of harm clashed with the holdings of other courts of appeals, which do not require such measures, uh, particularly in cases involving domestic violence. In, um, in, uh, in April 2021, the, the justices asked the federal government for its views, and the Solicitor General uh, took a while and then uh, filed a brief in which they agreed with uh, the mother that the Supreme Court should weigh in also, uh, but then agreed um, also, I guess, with the mother in saying that uh, the Hague Convention allows but does not require a court to consider measures that could ameliorate the risk to the child. Now the court is fully briefed and awaiting argument uh, in the upcoming weeks. Um, the petitioner, uh, again, the mother, argues that the Hague Convention does not require consideration of ameliorative measures. They say that if you find grave danger, it's okay to just say, we're not gonna return the child. Um, they acknowledge uh, what they say could be limited use of ameliorative measures if narrowly tailored to facilitate the prompt return of the child. Um, but she focuses on things like, you know, she says that there's kind of a broad range, again, that there's very, you know, not all of these cases involve things like domestic abuse. They could involve cases like, for example, where the child is being asked to be returned to a country where there's rampant disease. And they say that the focus should be on more things like countries where there are communicable diseases, where it's a fairly easy fix to just say, child should be vaccinated or something like that. Um, and they say that the text of, this, of the uh, treaty suggests that, um, uh, you know, for things like, um, uh, 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 like domestic abuse, the idea is that you should have fairly quick proceedings to return, return the child. And for things like domestic abuse, where you're having, uh, you have to have months and months of proceedings, like in this case, uh, there were over a year of proceedings, both before and after the appeal, um, in order to come up with the sorts of um, measures that would, that would ensure there wasn't a grave risk. And they say that in cases like domestic abuse, where you have to have these extensive proceedings, that that's kind of inconsistent with the idea that they're supposed to be relatively quick proceedings and send them back to um, the country. They also say that, um, you know, ordering these kinds of extensive measures are inconsistent with the idea here that 
you, you know, that, uh, that um, you know, you're supposed to have these very quick proceedings before you send them back. And when you're having these proceedings where you're ordering these sort of extensive measures, um, that you're kind of, you're basically stepping on the toes of the family courts in these foreign countries um, when you're saying, you know, here are all these sorts of extensive measures uh, that have to be in place before you even send the person back. And they say it's inconsistent with the idea that these are relatively quick proceedings uh, and then you send them back. They also say that these are proceedings that are very unusual for courts. You know, after all, federal courts um, are used to addressing federal jurisdiction and uh, specific types of state proceedings. On the whole, they don't have a lot of experience with family court. I mean, that's kind of by design that uh, federal courts don't have a lot of experience in these sorts of family measures and that they don't know family law, period. Um, respondents, by contrast, say that, you know, such orders, uh, you know, that this is really, uh, uh, that the treaty expects that you're going to really make an effort to be able to return people, return these children back to their home jurisdictions. And that it's, it kind of is implicit in that, uh, that you're going to be able to, you know, make steps to try to return people back and that you should really uh, take all steps possible in order to make it um, uh, to make it uh, feasible to return children to their home countries. And that you can't just sort of throw up your hands and say, oh, sorry, grave risk. You really have to exercise some sort of, you know, best efforts to try to return them. And they also say that um, this it isn't really inconsistent to, um, you know, impose these kinds of measures because after all, they're just kind of provisional orders saying, when you say, you know, they ha should have parenting classes and therapy and send them back, that um, this is just for purposes of provisionally sending them back. And that once they were sent back to the other country, that really um, those countries are gonna take over at that point. And if the local, in this case, Italian judges don't think that parenting classes are warranted, they're not obliged to, uh, you know, be uh, abide by those rules that they can take over and uh, and start over again, essentially. Um, now, uh, I think I offered a little bit of a prediction in the last case. I don't, I, my crystal ball is a little bit foggier here. Um, I will say that, you know, overwhelmingly uh, as a statistical matter, between two thirds and three quarters of petitioners win uh, in the Supreme Court and, um, uh, and here the petitioner is the mother, the party that doesn't really want the child returned. Um, uh, but I, I, I wouldn't really offer a prediction. If I had a guess from a fairly superficial uh, review of the papers, I think that uh, the petitioner, uh, the party seeking not to return the child probably has a slightly better chance. But uh, again, uh, that opinion is worth exactly what you paid for it. You know, these, uh, 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 I, I don't have, Thank you for that 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 summary. I mean, I, I wonder when I see these cases, you know, that that uh, these custody cases sort of going to the Supreme Court. I mean, are 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 the children still children by the time it gets to the Supreme Court? I mean, you know, uh, it, it seems it seems uh, uh, you know they grow up so fast. Uh, and how many years does it take to to resolve? Do you? I mean, I don't want to unfairly put you on the spot, but I'm just yeah. curious to know if these proceedings just the length of them, regardless of the outcome, are, are that helpful for a, a child? Right. No, it is a it is a good point because, I mean, I, I think in this case, the child is still a child, um, but you can easily see how litigation could really, um, you know, that the child could grow into adulthood during the pendency of a case because it took a year and a half to get through the, uh, you know, for proceedings just in district court. And then there's the Second Circuit appeal. And then 
I think a good rule of thumb, generally speaking, is that it usually takes about a year to get a case through the Supreme Court. So um, uh, it does suggest that there's something about the whole proceeding uh, that is somewhat inconsistent with, um, you know, a prompt return. And uh, it, it may be that um, the uh, that the party resisting the return of the child, the mother in this case, uh, has the better of the case that, you know, the whole point of this treaty is to have fairly concise proceedings and federal courts in the United States before they're returned. And, um, you know, if you're going to go to all the trouble of having, you know, testimony from uh, experts and possibly a guardian ad litem and other things like that, that, um, uh, that, that uh, in order to come up with more extensive measures to ensure the, the, the security of the child, uh, that it just doesn't make sense to, to do all that if you're going to return them in, in time to have them uh, grow, to, grow to adulthood in the home country. And, and before we turn to Evan, just one more, more thought on this, because, uh, you know, the, the um, uh, do we know anything about the kinds of children who are involved in a case like this? I mean, uh, on the one hand, you could think you'd have to be fairly uh, from a fairly affluent family if you have litigation that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, on the other hand, I remember another case from Italy a few years ago that, that certainly seemed to be a more of a, you know, middle class uh, family where one parent was a professor and, uh, you know, uh, but it's, it seems that to, you know, do, do we know anything about what kind of, of children or what kind of families are involved in this sort of, of litigation? You know, I, I don't know. I do think that once you get to the Supreme Court, um, uh, you know, there's resources that are available, uh, you know, like basically people will fight to do your case for free. Um, but, you know, there's an, it's a lot of litigation. And one thing that kind of struck me is that uh, the Supreme Court thought essentially that a $30,000 stipend for the wife to live in Italy for a year wasn't enough. And they upped it, uh, you know, they said it wasn't enough. And on remand, um, the father has to provide $150,000 stipend, which is, you know, a fairly good chunk of change. I don't know if that's representative, um, but I do think that you have to have uh, substantial resources. I mean, it's expensive enough to litigate a case in your home country. And it's another thing to litigate a case in a foreign country um, uh, and in federal court in the United States. Like, you know, I, I like to say I couldn't afford me and I definitely couldn't afford me in another country. Well, we're glad to have uh, you and, and everyone else here for free today. Um, uh, Evan, let me turn to you. Thank you for so uh, uh, patiently waiting till we get to the, the, uh, the state sovereign immunity case. Uh, can you um, tell us about it? Sure, thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, I should start by saying my title says Dean and I apologize if that's my fault. I'm only the former Dean here, thank the Lord. Um, I'm presenting uh, Texas Department of Public Safety against Torres, which raises the question of whether the doctrine of state sovereign immunity bars private individuals from suing in state court seeking damages against state governments when those uh, suits arise pursuant to Congress's Article I war powers, uh, more specifically here, the power to raise and support armies. Uh, that is not always the first source of power that we think of for most federal legislation, um, which is why perhaps this is a novel question. You'll be very happy to hear that the facts are much, much, much more simple than any of these international or uh, domestic arbitration cases. Uh, the plaintiff is Leroy Torres, who was once a state trooper for the state of Texas. 
He then left his employment to serve in the United States Army, after which he sought to return to become a state trooper again. Because he had acquired a lung condition during his Army service, he asked the state to rehire him into a somewhat different position as a state trooper, and he alleges the state says no. Uh, he sued Texas under the Federal Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act of 1994. Uh, that act is designed to prohibit an employer, either public or private employer, from taking an adverse action against a potential employee simply because they served in the military. And in this context, he alleges, what the act means is that if you leave the employment of a company and then you seek to come back after your army service, you, you have to be offered either the same position or something substantially equivalent. His argument is that uh, the state of Texas refused to accommodate his newly acquired disability during his service. And the alternative position that they offer him was not sufficiently equivalent to his old job. Uh, so he claims he was essentially constructively fired and brought a civil suit against the state for damages, basically for his lost compensation. The suit was filed in state court. Uh, the federal statute actually specifies that if you're suing a state entity, you have to sue in state court. In defense, the state claimed that the state had an automatic and complete defense of state sovereign immunity, according to which the state cannot be sued for money damages, even in its own court without its consent. And the state argued it had not given its consent in any form. The state appellate court in Texas agreed and dismissed Torres' suit uh, and the state Supreme Court did not review the case. So the Supreme Court granted Torres' cert petition directly from the appellate court. By way of legal background, we have to say something about what, what is this state sovereign immunity claim. Uh, if you look for the state sovereign immunity claim or clause in the constitution, you'll be looking for a long time because there isn't one. Uh, the Supreme Court has derived this notion of a state sovereign immunity defense based on his kind of structural values that it presumes served as a backdrop to the Constitution itself. Uh, the legal framework actually started in the context of suits against states in federal court. And the original language of Article Three of the Constitution can easily be read to give federal courts jurisdiction over suits brought against states by citizens. In 1793, in Chisholm against Georgia, the Supreme Court upheld a particular species of that category, a suit brought against a state by a citizen of another state. There was what the court describes as a major outcry, uh, apparently not from federal court scholars, although perhaps had there been federal court scholars at the time, they would have joined the, the, the group. Um, but basically the, the court, the country said, no, 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 no. That ignores the fact that states ought to retain some kind of sovereignty uh, for which they can't be sued without their consent. And Congress proposed and the states quickly ratified the 11th Amendment, which overruled the result in that case. For the past 100 years, uh, well, maybe 200, but certainly starting 100 years ago, there's been substantial disagreement among the justices and scholars about the meaning of the 11th Amendment. Uh, what the court has done uh, has finally taken a, a, a relatively now stable and definitive view. And they have held that the 11th Amendment text is not limited to what the text actually says, which is kind of a narrow configure, reconfiguring of Article Three jurisdiction. 
but it reflects a much broader proposition uh, that the states, in fact, do enjoy a constitutionally grounded immunity from suits brought against them by states, uh, by individuals uh, in court. So in other words, the court says the 11th, it's not the 11th Amendment isn't important only for what it, quote, says, but the, quote, presupposition which it confirms. And a few years later, in a case Alden against Maine, the Supreme Court said uh, the state can claim that immunity not only in federal court, which is what the 11th Amendment talks about, but in state court as well. So the idea is that the states came to the Constitution originally, they had some kind of pre-constitutional sovereignty, and in the negotiation to create the federal government in that original plan of the convention, they maintained their sovereignty, except insofar they may have waived it as part of the process of constitutional creation. Um, this is my way of introducing the fact that I too am talking about arbitration, you didn't know it, uh, but basically what we're saying is the states arbitrated with the federal government the, the nature of any retained state sovereignty that was essentially arbitrated in the original crafting of the Constitution. So where do we, so, so this notion is there's a federal immunity unless the states waived it in the Constitution. Then the question is, did the states in fact waive their immunity from private suits seeking to enforce the war powers? Supreme Court has long held that in general, the answer is no, that Congress cannot use its Article I powers to create legislative regimes that allow private citizens to sue states. But they have found a couple of exceptions. Um, about uh, 15 years ago, they said there's an exception for the bankruptcy clause. They held that the states did agree in the plan of the Constitutional Convention not to assert sovereign immunity defenses dealing with uh, bankruptcy claims or brought, proceedings brought pursuant to the law on the subject of bankruptcies. And the court looked to the particular history of that clause and the post-ratification discussion of that clause to decide that the states actually had consented to be sued. Um, now, some of that may be because bankruptcy court proceedings are a little bit specialized. The court says they really deal more with property within REM kind of jurisdiction and not necessarily personal jurisdiction for damages. And in fact, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court referred to this exception and Justice Kagan used the language of bankruptcy exceptionalism, perhaps suggesting that this is the only exception in Article I for where Congress can authorize a suit against the state. But then last year, the court decided another such case, Penny's Pipeline against New Jersey, and the court held that the state's surrendered suit uh, sorry, immunity to suit in federal, federal eminent domain proceedings, even when those proceedings were brought by individuals who were essentially deputized that power by the federal government. And again, the court looked at structural principles and early historical practice. So in this case, Torres says the court should basically decide the same thing for this particular Article I power, which is the power to raise and support armies. The notion being that uh, Congress has plenary and exclusive power to do that. And part of the means that it's implementing that is by protecting people from adverse employment reactions. If they leave employment to go into the army, they should be able to come back out of the army without having kind of lost their uh, job and their priority. Torres and a slew of amici argue the answer is yes, this is another one of these special cases. Uh, the war powers is certainly an example of power given to Congress that was fully understood to be plenary and exclusive. 
uh, states retained absolutely no sovereign powers to wage war on behalf of the United States, uh, and therefore shouldn't be thought of as having any sovereignty to do anything that kind of gets in the way of the United States decision uh, to, to raise an army. Um, the court in an older case quoted President Lincoln once saying that the power to raise and support armies is given fully, completely, and unconditionally. It's not a power to raise armies if state authorities choose to consent. So the state on the other side argues that, look, there was no direct discussion in the Constitutional Convention about the power of raising armies and how it affected state sovereign immunity. Uh, and it wasn't like there was a long, an old tradition starting from the framing of having lawsuits brought under this power, unlike both the bankruptcy context and the federal eminent domain context, where you can find precursors of suits involving those subject matters against states. Um, and therefore, this is not one of those exceptional cases. There aren't a lot of guideposts. Uh, so it's very difficult to figure out exactly how to predict what's going to happen in this case. Uh, the trend line certainly favors state sovereign immunity. As a general matter, the court has been protecting that in almost every case after case after case. Uh, on the other hand, the court did grant cert in this case, even though the lower court had protected state sovereign immunity. So it makes one wonder whether or not there are enough votes in the court to think, hmm, maybe, maybe the war powers really is an exceptional power that over override state sovereign immunity. Uh, as a final comment, I will say there's a much more straightforward and I think satisfactory basis for resolving this case. Um, I and many federal court scholars think that the whole premise here is problematic, that the, that the constitution itself contains only a narrow grounding for state sovereign immunity. And that is the narrow grounding that was provided by the 11th Amendment fixed to Article III jurisdiction. And that all the other state sovereign immunity principles uh, are there, but they're there as a matter of common law, in which case Congress, if it chooses to, can use any of its Article I powers to override state sovereign immunity because Congress can always use its Section I powers to override common law. Um, but while I Wait, might- One second, I want to just, uh, have an, uh, pardon me for one moment, I just wanted to, <clears throat> because we are, believe it or not, running closer to the end of our, <clears throat> of our discussion today to just remind viewers uh, that we'd uh, welcome some questions that you can raise your hand via Zoom or type in a message in the, in the, in the chat. Uh, and uh, I, I just uh, would, would throw out uh, just a couple uh, quick, quick thoughts here. One, you know, I was a little surprised at the facts of this case in one way, because, you know, we hear- uh, at least judging by bumper stickers that, you know, Texas is very pro-military. So, you know, to have such a, a, a parsimonious uh, approach to uh, a service member who actually wants to rejoin a paramilitary organization, the state police, uh, to me was sort of surprising that they were, that, you know, that, 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 you know, bumper stickers aside, their actual policy when it came down to, you know, giving the guy a job was, was, was maybe a little different. The other thing also, though, to try to tie it into some context is that, um, you know, Torres's actual alleged injury, I don't know if it's alleged, maybe real injury, uh, I guess, because he's injured, um, is from those, the famous burn pits that the president spoke about, uh, uh, you know, where he, he, you know, where he, he spoke about his own son, uh, you know, potentially having developed uh, cancer from exposure to those burn pits in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. So uh, even though this case in some ways seems a little, you know, pedestrian in that uh, it's, uh, you know, about a state trooper who wants a desk job, you know, um, 
it does tie into some very larger questions and shows you how the you know the interrelationship between many different forms of of, of policy in this country and how they get to the to the the Supreme Court. Um, the uh, uh, and I'll just quickly mention a couple of other cases. You know. Uh, which also actually are interesting once you get uh, toward them. You know, one of them has to do uh, similar to the, the Southwest Airlines case. It deals with the definition of a transport worker. It has to do with railroad employees and are they involved in interstate uh, commerce when they are not moving, but they're putting things on and off trains. So it's similar in some ways to the Southwest Airlines case. And, and maybe uh, of, of, of greater uh, you know, political significance is we have a case uh, from North Carolina where state lawmakers want to intervene in a voter ID case uh, to represent an interest that the, the, state, uh, the state's lawyer, the attorney general and the elections board uh, have decided to dispose of differently. And we've had a number of cases where you have some state official who disagrees with other state officials about uh, how to defend uh, or argue for a law uh, want to get involved in the litigation. Uh, and uh, we had one where the, the, the court recently let the Kentucky Attorney General uh, intervene in a case uh, involving an abortion regulation, uh, even though the, uh, the, the state uh, had decided not to continue uh, appealing an adverse ruling. Uh, here we have a, a similar type of situation, and it might be interesting to see uh, if this is treated similarly, and if really the, the court wants to open the door to have pretty much any elected official uh, you know, come in when they don't agree or not any, at least some elected officials uh, come in uh, when they don't agree with other elected officials who are uh, adopting a litigation uh, position. So uh, those are the other two cases. But uh, panelists and audience, uh, now is the, uh, the, the, the free-for-all round. Uh, what, uh, what say you? I can, I can just add a little point on, on one of the cases you mentioned, the intervention case. What makes the North Carolina case interesting is usually uh, the putatively intervening party is representing a different party than somebody else already in the litigation. So, you know, uh, the, the state wants to come in or is already in, but the legislature wants to come in as a separate entity. Uh, what makes this case a little bit different is that the legislative bodies are essentially trying to come in to represent the state qua state. Uh, so you, at least one way of looking at it is that they are seeking to have two sets of lawyers for the same client because they're arguing that the first set of lawyers isn't defending the client's interest uh, in the way that the second set of lawyers want to. So it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit trickier than at least many, maybe not all, but many of the more recent intervention cases. Um, and it's not a case where nobody was defending the statute, where somebody new wanted to come in because the old person said, I, I'm done. So, so it's a little bit trickier, uh, which is why it's a very interesting case to watch. You can, uh, you've heard of court packing, this is council packing. Okay, uh, we have some questions from the audience. Uh, how about Robert Fitzpatrick? Okay, uh, well, let's, let's look. He seems muted. So let's move on to Larry White. Here's Larry. Hi, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Greatly enjoy these, by the way. Uh, I'm an American lawyer in Turkey, 
I've had some experience with a number of Hague Convention cases, normally contacted by lawyers on either side. Um, just a couple of observations. One of them is there was a question about the assets of the family. I'm very familiar with an American woman whose family completely liquidated all their assets to carry the case. And it only went up to the, to the uh, First Circuit, but they had completely wiped out all their savings uh, in terms of uh, fighting a Hague uh, um, issue. Uh, the second one is my question is, uh, in, in my view, one of the reasons to try and do this is essentially create longer time of the children in the new home or the preferred home by whatever party it is. And so they can better make the argument that the children are well settled. Uh, and in the cases I've seen, in fact, uh, these cases go on for five or six years. And by that time, the children don't want to go back anywhere. So I, I was just wondering, point that, uh, you know, with... having lived somewhere for a certain time, you know, at a, there's one of the other exceptions in the statute to return is where the child is mature enough to make up their own mind and they want to stay someplace. They want to stay at the new place. And you can imagine how after it's gone on for five years and, you know, Italy or Turkey or wherever it seems like a distant memory that they may decide, uh, you know, to, to remain in the United States. So it, 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 you know, even though the idea was prompt return, uh, so that the, the 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 party that takes the child doesn't gain an gain a, uh, an advantage, um, mm -hmm. you know that uh, as they say, possession is nine tenths of the law. Well, I agree with you, especially when there's an issue of language. Uh, if the children would have to go to school, they have to new the, learn the, the language that they probably don't are not that proficient in. But thank you very much. I appreciate the discussion on that. Thank you, Larry. Um, another another question. All right. Well, I wanted, you know, um, I know you all were waiting. I, I forgot to say fasten your seatbelts when we talked about the Southwest Airlines case. So I apologize for omitting that that uh, that uh, juvenile quip. Um, okay. Well, you know, we are approaching the the end of our session today. Unless we have any last minute questions or, or comments from the panel, I wanna I wanna thank everyone for uh, your uh, scholarship and erudition and for uh, putting up with my uh, infantile humor. Uh, and I wanna all thank the audience for tuning in because these are important cases. These are the bread and butter uh, uh, work of the Supreme Court and other courts. Probably few of these cases will prompt questions next week when Judge Jackson appears before the Judiciary Committee, but it's worthwhile to remember that uh, this type of stuff uh, is, is really uh, much of the court's business and the kind of uh, decision that we rely on the justices' uh, wisdom and uh, expertise and judgment to resolve to the nation's benefit. Uh, reminding you again, uh, all our uh, all opinions, if any, that were expressed today are those of the individual. Thank you, uh, Federalist Society panelists, uh, audience, and uh, tune in for the next sitting uh, coming up next month. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.